I don't know if Joseph told you. That was lovely. And we were all singing along with you because that's in our hymnal. Some of us were singing along with her silently, right? Beautiful. So spring is the time of year when Jewish and Christian traditions intersect in historical and significant ways. Today is Palm Sunday, the day Jesus and his disciples marched into Jerusalem. For almost 2,000 years, Christians have honored Jesus' humble entry with palm fronds and worship. And Passover begins Tuesday night. So Jews have celebrated Passover for more than 3,000 years with seders. Those lively ritual meals are a reenactment of the liberation of the Israelites from slavery. And the importance of those two holy days are embedded in the passage from the Greek Testament that we read today. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is entering Jerusalem as crowds are gathering and preparing for Passover. Imagine the hubbub of a few weeks before Christmas. Kind of like that. So, growing up, I found the Bible cryptic. I didn't get any systematic study of the text when I was in Sunday school at an Episcopal church. Or, <clears throat> more honestly, I wasn't paying close attention. <laughs> uh, and I needed help peeling back the layers of meaning in the archaic words. And today, I've actually come to appreciate that the Greek Testament is very cryptic, by design. The narratives in the Gospels are told in terse, left to the reader's imagination, and that's good, really. These gaps provide great power and longevity to the Bible's narratives. Its concise storylines allow us to bring ourselves more fully into the story, if we allow ourselves. So before I go on much further, there are indeed reckless ways to fill in the gaps and bring our modern sensibilities to the ancient texts. You all were talking about some in religious education. And this morning, we will be as responsible as we can be looking at ideas that are from a culture 2,000 years old and 3,000 miles from here and conveyed through layer upon layer of translation. So how we'll be working with this passage from Mark is often termed narrative criticism. This way of reading the Bible, or any text really, pays close attention to the narrative structure and the plot and the characters and the themes and this method of looking at the Bible assumes, assumes every text has multiple interpretations. So each reader listening brings their own understandings to the words. 
So what I hear in that passage of Mark is different from what you hear and different from what the person sitting next to you hears. So let's start with some basic details about the Bible. The earliest Christian texts included in it are seven letters that Paul wrote to some very beginning communities, to some house churches. And he wrote those 50 years after Jesus died. And the letters reveal that there are communities spread out through the Roman Empire, working imperfectly, very humanly, to follow the teachings of Jesus. Some are Jewish, some are Gentiles. And then the Gospel of Mark comes next. It was written 20, 15, 20 years later. So it's written 70 years approximately after Jesus dies, which really, that's two whole generations. So the Gospel of Mark is not an eyewitness firsthand account. But what it is, is an innovation in communicating religious ideas through a life story. And then the three subsequent um, Gospels borrow very heavily from Mark. All four Gospels suggest that these early Christian communities valued a loose biography, and I'm willing to say a loose history, as a tool for coming to understand what they are doing as a group and how they are to live their lives. Have an example. So the passage in Mark today describing Jesus' return to Jerusalem is the very first account we have of this possible event. And it's the only time that Jesus goes to Jerusalem in Mark. And the listener has been told from the beginning of the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the Christ. And all action in Mark points to that possibility. Yet, throughout the story, the disciples are never fully up with this message. They don't fully get it the whole way through. In a structural sense, the disciples are the unknowing fools who provide a mechanism for getting Jesus' words out to the public and to the reader. And unlike later Gospels interpretations, Jesus is not portrayed as fully divine in Mark. Rather, he has a, a special relationship with God. He is son of God. But he's also very human. He's son of man. In earlier chapters in Mark, we'd already know that Jesus has predicted more than once that he is to go to Jerusalem, where he will be killed, and then he will be raised from the dead. So now we're all caught up to this point in the story. What I'd like to do is place ourselves inside the events. First, we'll imagine ourselves as a disciple. And why not imagine ourselves as the donkey? Then as one of the people along the road. And lastly, let's imagine what it would be like to be Jesus. 
And while all 12 disciples are men, for us today, we won't let that gender issue hinder our imagination of what it means to be a disciple. Because we immediately accepted Jesus' call to follow him years ago. However, over time, as we've traveled, we've grown continuously uncertain, we've missed his cues, we've misunderstood his teachings and his messages, and now we're growing increasingly estranged from him. I'm sure you've had travel partners like that. You know, it gets a little weird later on in the trip. And the disciples are not just simple yes-men. And lately, our group of 12 has been bickering over rank and prestige, not paying much attention to the heart of Jesus' messages at all. We want to be on his right hand. We want to be the ones in the spotlight. <clears throat> so now, as we are in, about to enter a city, alive with Passover preparations, we sense that action is coming to a head. We believe events will unfold quickly as Jesus has been predicting all along. So despite some of our distancing, we're still willing to take orders and accept authority from our teacher. The way Jesus requests us to fetch a donkey continues that mysterious and miraculous nature of the whole journey up to this point. For example, Jesus has never been to Jerusalem, but he knew there was a donkey right outside the city gate, tied up to a door that hadn't been ridden. We've grown used to these kinds of demands and are willing to go with a small group into Jerusalem before everyone else. So walking down into the city gives us some time to think, talk, and our scouting ahead is clearly a form of preparation from someone powerful. We are his missives. Jesus gives us the exact words to describe his authority behind requisitioning an animal, someone else's property. The Lord has need of it. Indeed, his words work as promised, and our group leads the donkey back up to the waiting Jesus and remaining disciples. And then we're willing to throw our coats over the animal so Jesus can ride more comfortably on the saddle. I imagine they'd really stink afterwards. And then we'll walk alongside, and once we get to the city, we become virtually invisible and all of the center of attention gets focused on Jesus. So can you picture yourself at all in any of these actions as a disciple? Or let's be more specific. Can you imagine times in your life you were uncertain about the person in charge, but had not reached a point of breaking away or disobeying yet. 
How did you respond when you began to chafe under someone's authority? Authority that you granted them earlier. There have been times I've worked for people and begun to doubt their leadership. I can imagine this changing dynamic in a marriage or a partnership that's starting to fall apart. And a parent might be willing to let a child take the lead while knowing that what lies ahead might be some form of disaster or discomfort for them, for all. And I ask these simple questions without imposing answers. We are bringing our full selves to the story, and each of our answers will be unique. So after this Palm Sunday scene, soon one of us will betray Jesus. Others will fall asleep while he suffers a prayerful existential crisis. When he's arrested, we all flee. And one of us will completely deny ever knowing him. Have you deserted something or someone you believed in? because you got scared? Have you been asked to stick your neck out too far, too publicly, so you quit? In one very concrete way, our congregational polity, our Unitarian Universalist way of choosing leaders, being independent churches, and having a collaborative balance of power among the board, the congregation, and the minister grows out of problems that can arise when a single person is in charge. No matter how noble or pious or well-intended this person may be. A charismatic leader can be of great value, but also create long-term problems. The strength of followers may not be fully nourished or realized, and choosing a successor can be very hard. Our church does not grant sole authority to a single person. Not to the minister, not to the president of the congregation, not to the staff. Okay, so we've tried out being a, a disciple. Now we're going to be... Donkeys. Let's have a little fun. No puns about asses allowed. In ancient Israel, the donkey was a beast of burden, used for work, and was larger than the typical donkey is today. And since horses were used primarily for warfare, donkeys, because they were working, helping were considered more an animal of peace. And we cannot know if we, as this donkey, have been used for work, but we, we could have been yoked, but clearly we've never been ridden or carried the shifting weight 
of a man. The text is silent on the donkey's perception, so we have to imagine if we are frightened by this change in routine. We have to picture what a donkey experiences being led away by strangers who smell and act differently than what we're used to. From this point forward, all our sensations are new. Having cloaks thrown on our backs, having a man climb on top, holding to our hair and our little short mane. Maybe they put a bridle on our face and that's weird. No, that's terrible. I see great potential for trouble and comedy. Did it take just one try for Jesus to get on us? Could the Son of God who performed so many purported miracles get us, the donkey, to even behave? It may have taken all 12 men to surround Jesus and get us headed in the right direction. The Bible contains tons of humor and puns, but the Gospel of Mark missed this hilarious possibility. Like the donkey, have you been given an unexpected burden or asked to support someone? Did you buck it off or stay on for the ride? How are you at being a beginner, trying out new situations for the first time, being led who knows where? Okay, so now we are the citizens alongside the road as Jesus and his disciples come into Jerusalem. Did we come because word spread about the past year of this ministry? We want to see for ourselves this man we've heard so much about. Or maybe just the story of a kingly guy coming in on a donkey is enough to move us into action. Are we at work or are we outside of our homes willing to line the streets? Maybe we've been shopping for Passover meals and heard this wild commotion and had to go see what the heck it was about. As subjects of the Roman Empire, if we are dissatisfied with life under the reign of Emperor Tiberius and his local prefect, Pontius Pilate, we indeed might be willing to race out to see the man who is willing to critique the government, critique taxation, and religious hypocrisies. Since this activist teacher doesn't come prancing into town on some fancy armored horse, but rather a lowly donkey, we might be further persuaded of his power, a very gentle, contrary power. He comes riding in as a king, but disrupts the symbols of royalty and political might. He rides in on a donkey as a symbol of peace. And trust me, Pope Francis gets this. He sets aside his Pope mobile and takes public transportation instead.
Have you rushed out to see someone famous because you value their message and want to support their cause? You might be in a crowd soon taking pictures with your phone and posting on Facebook and Twitter. Would you join the crowd in Jerusalem shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of David. You might be familiar words that are part of a hymn that almost everyone on the street had sung. Hosanna means Savior, and we're shouting a song that connects us to our past. Have you shouted for joy when someone gets elected that you voted for? Have you strongly believed in a leader and knew that that person could fix some broken part of our society? Would you have thrown down your own coat onto the street, offering full hospitality to this rabble-rousing religious critic? So finally, let's imagine ourselves as Jesus, making this grand entrance into the city. I I may have watched too many episodes of West Wing, Scandal, and House of Cards, because I keep seeing how carefully Jesus is crafting his image. As Jesus, we know we are entering the city ultimately to die. But we don't come alone. We come with an entourage of 12. We are carefully acting out an ancient prophecy that everyone along the street knows about. The minor prophet Zechariah had proclaimed, Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. Perhaps we chose to ride a donkey referencing this prophecy because it's the last public act we can fully control. With as many symbols as we can muster, we signal we come in peace, yet we bring a message that is potent and confronts all that is wrong with the Roman Empire. In a sense, we are waging war. So we're sending these mixed Messages of peace and war, war of ideas, war of how one lives one's life. The donkey had never been ridden, ridden, so we ride awkwardly into town. And our enemies may consider our ungainly arrival a sign of weakness, but we're throwing them off guard. And many lining the streets are hungry for what we stand for and say. We are not a threat to them, but a welcome hope for change. They see our appearance as a critical moment in history and the final fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. So as an outspoken figure, how would you come into a new city knowing that you were coming to your death. Do you have a cause 
that is so vital that you are willing to use every tool at your disposal despite knowing you will not succeed in the end you, or you will not survive in the end. Martin Luther King Jr. comes to mind for me. And then the Palm Sunday passage doesn't end with dramatic flair. Other gospels embellish it later. But like Jesus, I can imagine easily being tired and kind of going to the temple, checking things out, and then retiring back out of the city to sleep. And while it's anticlimactic, it does foretell his plans, because the very next thing he does, the very next day, is goes to the temple and upsets the money changers. So he's not only making the Roman Empire mad, he's now getting at the Jewish authorities. So he's sharpening his conflict with everybody. And he does it with clarity and conviction. Jesus is being fearless. So is there a time in your life when you were so certain of your values you took risks that went against the grain of your immediate life or against the general culture? Have you arranged events to make sure they demand attention and pack a wallop? Like a corporate whistleblower, have you acted on what is right even though you know what follows will be miserable or dangerous? And the Gospel of Mark includes a player we have not discussed. God is in there. And in this passage, Jesus has the most agency. God's will is kind of in the background. God is not one of those puppet masters controlling what's going on. And Jesus is the one giving direction. So let's treat God in this story as the moral force within, the moral force within that propels us to act to act with deeper concern for the hurting and the poor and the oppressed and with a desire to destroy all the systems that bring that about, that cause suffering. Our Unitarian Universalist heritages are filled with men and women and this church is filled with men and women willing to work to change religious traditions and civil laws that outrage our moral values. We carry this ethical force within us. We stoke its fire when we're together. And over the centuries, we've staged protests, we've written letters, we've spoken to others, we've directed our energy and our time to make change to change the status quo. So no matter who we identify with in this story of Palm Sunday, it is the depiction of the mundane working in concert with the spectacular 
No single player can disrupt the ideologies and habits of a community or an empire. It takes visionaries like Jesus, takes followers, even doubtful followers like the disciples, takes unwitting players like the people on the street and even the donkey. It takes thoughtful symbolism, but most importantly, it takes fearlessness, acting without fear. So may we bring into our lives today this Palm Sunday example of boldness, propelled by our inner compassionate moral force. May we be agents of change despite sure difficulties. Going ahead anyway. May it be so.